Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. Welcome to this episode where I get to sit down and talk to somebody who I had met more than a few years ago now, thanks to COVID and everything else, you know, taking time away from it. But I would like to welcome Kate Graham from Catalyst Kennels to the show. Kate, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so, like I was saying, we've we crossed paths. Gosh, what was it? Three years ago? Oh, it had to. Yeah, right, right before COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the fun part was you had brought a litter of puppies out, and I was doing a very impromptu puppy cognition examination uh, with those pups you had brought out there. And it's funny, some of those actually turned out uh, and found good working places and and things like that. It was just fun to, to – I didn't have anything with me to do a typical one, but we were still able to see some cool things out of it when we did that. Absolutely. No, that was a great opportunity to be able to get that litter out there and see some of how, uh, you know, some of the little differences between puppies, some different ways that they thought. Um, and then, yeah, seeing them as they've grown up. And mm -hmm. I think uh, at least one of those has returned to you for cognition testing since that little charger dog that yeah. Jamie has. Yes. So, yeah. Interesting seeing them all grown up now and how a lot of those things have really held true as they've developed. Absolutely. Well, for I know you're known in a lot of different circles, you know, you, whether it be from the, I have people that I come across in nose work, search and rescue and so forth. But for those who don't know who you are in your kennel, tell us a little bit about you and how you got to where you're at today. Yeah. So I own Catalyst Kennels. We breed Labradors for mostly for activities. Um, and so my focus on labs is creating a lab that is, uh, first and foremost, built to be an effective detection asset um, and a dog that can work with the resilience, stamina, determination that is needed to be able to be an effective asset in a police department, in a federal agency, or in the SAR world. As a secondary focus, we do some dogs that uh, focus a little bit better on some of the sport activities like nose work, agility, um, some competition obedience. And those dogs we do select sometimes from our detection litters. We also have a couple dogs that will uh, breed from slightly different pedigrees to use for those more team oriented sports. I started... Um, goodness. My, so let's see, our oldest lab is almost 11 now. Um, so I started in labs uh, by accident, essentially. So I grew up in the show dog world, um, showing dogs in confirmation, competition, obedience, agility, rally, some hunt test things, all of the activities there. Uh, was not going to go to college, was going to potentially go off and either be a professional handler in the confirmation world or get into training more for some of the sports, um, but did not see how college would really fit in the scheme of the dog activities that I was so involved in already. I ended up being convinced to go to SUNY Cobleskill, which at that time did not have a formal canine program, but did have uh, Dr. Steve McKenzie there teaching, who was a Napwata master trainer who passed a few years ago. Um, and Doc McKenzie encouraged me to go there, encouraged me to join the program. Uh, I started out going just for my associates, was going to get just that degree and leave. 
I was almost done with my associates and in an effort to get me to stay for my bachelor's doc, uh, bribed me with helping (laughs) raise some lab puppies for green detection dogs. So we went out, bought two labs, um, from a breeder that does mostly field trial dogs. And he, he walked me through his, his experience and his ideas on raising a green dog. And we raised those two as green dogs. One was vended to shallow Creek. One ended up going private sector explosives with a private firm. Um, and they are one actually just passed. The other one is still actively working into her senior years today. Um, so throughout that, I ended up staying for my bachelor's. I got a bachelor's in, uh, at that point, animal science with a canine concentration and a genetics minor. Um, and then went on to teach at Cobalt Skill for a little while. So stayed there, taught within their animal science and their canine program. Um, and that was really my formal education into that. Throughout the entire time I was at Cobalt Skill, Doc and I continued to buy labs and start labs for detection purposes and starting them as green dogs to be sold to agencies. Upon leaving Cobalt Skill, um, I was with Guiding Eyes for the Blind for a brief period, then went and worked private sector uh, within a canine reproductive hospital um, and worked through managing the, the repro sector of that uh private industry there. And then on to another service dog school um, that really had uh, some really great resources to be able to throw into their um, breeding program and their canine management program. So I was director of canine wellness at that service dog school. And within that scope, worked through um, picking our breeding pairs, monitoring and managing the genetics in that program, looking and uh, conducting behavioral assessments on some of our younger dogs up until about their graduation to determine whether we were meeting our behavioral uh, goals through breeding or whether we were falling short in certain areas and starting to identify problems that way. We were able to use estimated breeding values within that program. And so looking at the EBV system that Guiding Eyes had developed and then was adopted by um, the uh, one of the breeding consortiums within the service dog schools. Mm -hmm. Um, And so looking at behaviors in a very quantitative, objective way um, within a large span of dogs in a closed colony, which can give us some really interesting insights into genetics. Um, And then, yes, my most recent move is we, with, let's say, just earlier this year, um, bought a large uh, training and kennel facility that kind of fell into my lap a little bit um, through an odd system of events. (laughs) And we have gotten that up and running. I have left the service dog school and am now uh, taking Catalyst in a little different direction. And we're starting to expand what we're doing with our lab program. Um, And also we're doing some stuff now on the pet side too. Yeah, to say you know a little bit about this stuff is an understatement. <laughs> you have definitely put in your work. And uh, for the listeners there, if you lost audio for a second, that was me hitting a wrong button when you started talking, but I had you right back within a second or two, so you were good. But uh, the, I mean, wow, you have put in the work. And with one of the coolest guys who I got to meet too earlier on in my career, Doc McKenzie, um, he actually helped me understand 
there's the things that we think we know versus what the dogs are really doing. Um, and then tracking and detection was, was a couple of those things where I had, I got an enlightening conversation with him. Uh, actually it was a whole group of us. He had come out to uh, international canine conference back when Bob Eden was doing stuff and he would go out there with Bob Eden. And anyway, so he was one of those people that I, I respected and knew had a lot of information. So the fact that you got to go spend even obviously quite a bit of time and learn with him uh, says a lot to what I know your background is now um, and the information that you are able to provide to others. So, I mean, my hat's off to you for that hard work that you've done to, to get to where you're at now, for sure. No, thank you. It's been, I, I couldn't have chosen a better way to, you know, develop all these things and spending all of the time with Doc was phenomenal, especially at a period of time where he was so open with sharing information. His physical health allowed him to still do all of those mm -hmm. things. I mean, we spent mornings on the tracking field and afternoons yeah. working detection and just very interesting thought processes from him about how we can move away from conventional ideas and we can we can be creative in the training as long as it is sound and as long as we're using a data-driven approach and seeing the results that we need um because there were lots of things i mean even when we look at outing a dog you know mm -hmm. he was one of the earlier proponents of a two toy out when it was not normally how it was done at that yeah. point in time and and so he was constantly kind of pushing that um, pushing that envelope and continuing to expand through new ideas and um, was a phenomenal teacher in that he let me um, stumble through things to figure out the right <laughs> answer quite often. He yeah. was not one that would show you the way. He would guide you along the path and and let you kind of figure it out for yourself, um, which is a phenomenal approach and, and was really effective. So he was a wonderful asset um, and he was... Uh, so, so dedicated to setting up that canine mm -hmm. program at Colville Skill, um, which has continued on now that he's passed with Kyle McRaith heading it. Um, and it's it's doing some really great things. We actually have a couple Colville Skill interns working for us right now nice. to finish up their degree. Um, and the students they're putting out are phenomenal. And they're, they're really doing a good job giving these kids a quality education into all of the foundations of dog training, giving them some good hands-on experience. Um, it's, it's a good thing. Yeah. So out of, so obviously you're a breeder of Labradors for those that, you know, didn't know the, obviously the Labrador history of genetics comes from like what you mentioned, a lot of the hunting field world. And as you started developing, let me ask this question first, how many, or what would be a percentage of the dogs that you produce now end up in a detection type home or work environment? It's a good question. So we are at this point doing, we don't do that many litters a year. We do two to three litters a year. Um, we do keep back a good majority of those puppies for the projects that we ourselves are raising dogs for. Any of the puppies that we sell at this point are going into either uh, search and rescue or sport. Um, at this point with the dogs that we are producing consistently, even the ones that may not look quite driven enough for professional detection or not independent enough or may lack some um, amount of confidence somewhere or may show some, some nerve um, in the traditional pet home 
typically still aren't thriving. They need something to do. Um, so those dogs, we are very careful and often growing up, continuing to see how we can support them. And then we found nose work to be a great outlet for a lot of those dogs to go into. Um, some that are a little more handler focused thrive in things like agility or um, rally obedience or something like that, where they are a pet, but they have something they are dedicated to doing and a task they can can really grab onto and do. Um, so at this point, about, let's see, two thirds of the litters we're doing are going to professional detection. And then about a third of those puppies are going uh, sport and some of our wilderness search and rescue. Yeah, that's, you know, pretty good diverse background for a lot of the dogs that, again, it's about utilizing their nose and detection of some form or another. Um, what would you say, so as you guys started selecting dogs to do for breeding um, and to, you know, go for the goal of producing these detection dogs, what were things that you guys looked at? Because again, like I said, you're pulling from genetically the hunting community or the field trial community, what were the important things that you guys were looking at genetically that said, okay, let's, these are qualities that are important to us. Um, now we have to re re reproduce this with the male and the female that we've uh, chosen for this. What were the things that you guys, what were the important things that you guys wanted to have as you do, as you did this? And then now, uh, what, is it the same things you're looking for now or has it evolved and changed? No, that's a great question. So I think the first thing we need to look at is, are the lines that we're pulling from lines that have been rewarded for the qualities we would like in detection work? A lot of our labs come from field trial hunt tests, whether it's HRC or AKC hunt test lines. Um, and when we look at those sports and what those sports are actually rewarding, we see that some of those things can be great assets for us in the detection world and other things are probably not as desired. So, and even within timeframes, the games can change. So a lot of our dogs come from field trial lines and I will say I'm particular too, and, and my preference is um, field trial dogs from a certain era. And the reason being that as anything evolves, any sport, mm -hmm. um, things are going to get more competitive. The game is going to change with some trends and it will ebb and flow into ways that whatever judges are rewarding, you know, currently or whatever the, the uh, pro trainers are really doing well with, the sport will continue to push a little further and further. Field trials are a competitive sport. Only a couple of dogs in that trial, and it could be an 80 dog trial, only a couple are going home with points that weekend. Mm -hmm. The rest are going home with not. So in order to test those dogs and really weed out who's going to be the winners from the ones that are going home with no points, um, trials are going to push those boundaries further and further. And, and just as training develops, as different methods come up, um, judges are going to be influenced by that. And the setups for that trial are going to evolve. No field trial is laid out and set up the exact same way. There are parameters, mm -hmm. um, but there's no hard and fast. You have to do one mark here and one mark here and one mark to the left that's retired. And there's no hard and fast parameters that of things that have to be in the test. Mm -hmm. So a judge is able to design their own test for that weekend. Now, 
currently field trials are awarding. And I had, I was talking to a pro this week, actually, and we had a great conversation about how um, he was saying field trials are becoming far more cerebral. Mm -hmm. So the field trials from the, even say the nineties, which was well before I was in the game, but going back and talking to a lot of those old pros, (laughs) things that were getting rewarded. um, The marks were very, very long. They had several environmental factors. You needed a dog that had a ton of confidence and a ton of grit to continue running to go get that bird because they were, they were marks that were designed to test confidence and to test determination. Um, And they just wanted to see basically how far and how fast and how tough that dog could be to run out there and get that. Things that were not emphasized as highly were blind control. So Mm -hmm. in, in any of our retriever games, there are things called blinds, which are birds that are planted out. The dog does not see where they have been put. The handler knows the handler has to direct that dog to that bird. Mm -hmm. And so it has to be a directional, it has to be a game of directional control. Um, The dog has to be able to listen to the handler's directions. They are not supposed to wind the bird or or get scent of the bird and Mm -hmm. go chase it in. They are supposed to follow that handler's cues to be directed straight to it. Um, In older older eras of field trials, there was not as much emphasis on a really clean blind. If that dog winded it at the end, if it was a little bit messy or the dog fought the handler a little little bit, but got through it, you were still okay. Yeah. In the current era of field trials, we, in order to win and get your points, that dog needs to be a pinpoint blind dog. That dog needs to be extremely under control, extremely biddable to the handler. They cannot wind that bird. There's a lot of emphasis on a really clean blind now. So, you know, those are things, if I'm looking at a dog who might give me a little bit more screw you, Mm -hmm. I wind the bird Mm -hmm. and I'm going to go get it. Yep. Versus a dog who says, yes, I know where that bird is, but I'm going to follow your very precise directions and wait until you get me all the way there to get it. There's some preferences that we can pull from. Sure. I prefer the more independent, screw you, it's there, I'm going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and for detection, that's worked very well for me. I do not want the dog that goes, yeah, I know it's there, but I think it might be wrong or I need to wait for your permission. Um, and so there are certain trends that have been bred in and anytime we see the game evolve, breeding patterns will evolve also because the dogs who win in trials that require a lot more thinking, a lot more teamwork, a lot more, um, biddability towards the handler, those dogs that win are the dogs that are going to get bred and those qualities are going to get passed down. And so now we have slightly more biddable dogs, slightly more um, under control dogs, slightly more handler sensitive dogs, because that's what the current trials are awarding. And it's great for the field trial world. Mm-hmm. Maybe not great for detection stuff or maybe not exactly what we'd like for detection stuff. Yeah. And so just because we see these dogs that are winning all of these venues, um, we have to realize, is that venue rewarding the things that we want rewarded? Um, you know, another example we see in retriever trials quite a bit is, is line manners and noise. Um, again, current trials 
are not going to reward a dog who is breaking on the line or um, being excessively uh, noisy or having quite a bit of movement on that line. They want a very steady dog Mm -hmm. who has a lot of impulse control. Um, Quite honestly, I don't care quite as much in the detection world if that dog is the dog bouncing up and down, getting ready to go or or has some more pre-work arousal. Mm -hmm. Um, That's fine for me. But you know, in a, in a trial that's not going to get rewarded, then those dogs don't win and those dogs don't get put up at stud and those dogs don't get bred. Um, so again, I think just as we look through, we do look for, I'm not looking for what the titles or what titles the dog has earned. I'm not necessarily looking at how successful they are in the game currently. Mm -hmm. I want to see what does that dog bring to the table? Does it have the work ethic I need? Does it have that monstrous amount of motivation? Um, is it handler resilient? Mm-hmm. Can that dog, um, you know, work despite the handler or is it working because of the handler support? Um, and, and yeah, I like a dog that's more independent. That's just my preference with the labs. Yeah. It, you're, you're bringing up a lot of points that are that overlay with other programs I've talked to. So like in the sport world of Schutzen IGP um, and some of the ring sports where they've changed due to a number of different reasons. So therefore the things that are looked at by a judge and desired for breeding have really changed the breed as a whole. And for a lot of that independent working kind of uh, ability that gets bred away. Like you mentioned in the retriever world, because of things like you just said in the retriever world, they wanted that bitability. They wanted that collaboration between human and dog, the ability just to do what I say, uh, be more robotic versus what we both know is detection needs is a dog who's independent, who you know, obviously we want some collaboration with us, but we don't want it to be so much collaboration that the dog just doesn't know what, you know, I, uh, I'm going to just do what you tell me to do versus being willing to get out there and just go do the work. Um, and it's, it's tough because right now the genetic pool for, let's just say the world of detection isn't, I mean, it's there, but it's not big enough. And most of us don't know because the standard isn't detection. The standard is all those things we just mentioned, whether it be the show world, the sport world, the retriever world, um, or sorry, the field trial world. All of those things are the parts that are where the money's at, right? So, you know, we have to go with, or we have to kind of weed through those things that, okay, yeah, that scored really well, but it's not exactly the qualities of and purpose that I want in the dog, but that one that scored, you know, <laughs> fifth, sixth, whatever it is, hey, I want to go breed with your dog. And of course, a lot of those breeders won't breed because in some cases they feel the dog wasn't worthy enough. So that's a, another important point that we have to consider. So, um, you know, I guess so that where I want to take the conversation, I guess a little bit is obviously the United States has said, okay, yes, we need dogs for protection of the homeland and detection is that one of those concepts and AKC and the U S government got together and created the Patriot uh, or puppy to Patriot program. And even that has had its own layers of difficulty and, um, struggles quite a bit because of 
well, what are we breeding for? And then there's all the different opinions. And then there's the different breeds within all of that too. And as I've traveled around and got to be around uh, breeders on the pointing side, breeders on the Labrador side, and, you know, spaniels weren't really in the mix too much, thank God, because I get to go tap into those all the time now. And they haven't been screwed with um, in that sense. But how, you know, obviously, you know, you have a big, clientele or contingency of people who want detection dogs. How do you see moving forward uh, that we start breeding for detection and we start breeding for the things that we need versus trying to pull from the things that we, from a, from organizations and, and programs that aren't the things that we need, but we look at and go, well, that one could work, that one could work. And then we kind of hope for the best when we breed these dogs together versus going, hey, we are pulling straight from the programs that are doing exactly what we need. What, what's the roadmap there and what are the problems with that or, or the positives? I think it's going to be a long road. Um, right now, at least within labs, we do have some, there are some phenomenal working labs that have been in detection for quite a while. What we run into from a breeding perspective with those dogs is a lot of those dogs are coming from, and not that they're bad, but just random breeders, random yeah. breeders of, of maybe just meat dogs, hunting dogs, or, um, or or a random field trial litter, or a random not even purpose bred litter, and that one dog becomes a phenomenal detection dog, and so we can look at breeding to that dog because phenotypically that dog is showing all of the things that we want, but when we're looking at that breadth of pedigree, we see that the parents didn't do crap towards mm -hmm. what we'd like. None of the siblings are doing that. They're all living in pet homes happily. And, and you do start to wonder, okay, is it really that this dog genetically is the package that we need? Or is it just that phenotypically and, you know, all of those right switches have been turned on. The handler did a beautiful job of development. They really were able to raise that puppy up and, and almost it's a fluke. Um, and so we do worry about, is that going to produce consistently the traits that we like or, is this dog going to be an inconsistent producer? Because he might be wonderful, um, but the genetics behind him really are, are not supporting the task that we're looking for. I think as we get into that roadmap of what's going to let us get into breeding more detection dogs um, focused on that specific task, we need to look at um, the way currently that we handle our intact dogs mm -hmm. and the way that we place our dogs into detection careers. Yeah. So we have or the vast majority of my breeding dogs, um, males and females, are out with handlers working. Mm -hmm. um, and we utilize a lot of SAR cadaver handlers for our breeding bitches yep. for the basically the purpose of it is a recovery at that point. Um, most of those people are on teams with multiple cadaver dogs. If I need that bitch to come back for a litter and be here for three months and it's out of work for three months, it's a recovery. So yep. It's not an emergency, you know, it's an emergency, but it's, yeah. it's someone else can pick up the slack in a couple mm -hmm. hours if you weren't there to respond immediately. So that's worked really well from the female side for us. It, it lets those dogs go out and work because the dogs that I'm looking to keep back as breeding bitches are not dogs that I could place into a pet home and say, Hey, you can be in a pet home and just use for breeding we're breeding them because they're great working animals and they need a job. And yep. I can't give that many breeding bitches a job in my own life and <laughs> yep. my own house. That's not, not functional. Um, 
But if we put them out with handlers that are willing to let them be bred and um, the dog gets to go have a great career, we can see that, yes, this dog really was the working dog that we thought it was. It's able to do the job. That helps us make more educated breeding decisions. The dog gets to go with a handler and it just helps us be able to keep a greater diversity of breeding animals still intact. Mm -hmm. From the male perspective, and I think we're starting to see this movement, um, trying to keep those really nice male labs that we send out intact and either on breeding agreements with the agency or most of them that we're vending, even as green dogs we're selling around a year, run those health clearances, freeze them, then neuter them. At least we have that frozen to be able to start collecting and and creating some, um, some type of storage of, of more genetic diversity there. Um, And I think if more breeders start getting into that and, and realizing there are, paths and ways that yes, I do not have that many dogs myself. We don't do that many litters. Um, but we have a great number of breeding dogs because they're all dispersed through, Mm -hmm. through the community and through handlers in our community. Um, it's worked very nicely for us. I think moving forward, um, you know, to be able to do this on a larger scale, we need to be able to have, um, consistent goals that we're working on. And I think that is again, getting there everyone's idea of a police dog is quite different and can be quite different. Um, And we still, at least in the lab world, are dealing with a good amount of service dog washouts that get donated for, for very low prices to agencies. Um, Or we get a good amount of uh, donated dogs still within lab, someone that has a lab litter. And so they donate a few to the agency down the street or to someone else. And, And it happens pretty frequently in that world to move forward genetically. We need to start to hold these dogs to a higher standard. I hate hearing in an Academy class, Oh, the lab's coming out and they have to change Mm -hmm. the whole setup and they have to do everything different and every, no, it shouldn't have to be that way. The lab should be able to work just as hard with just as much motivation and the same amount of pressure as that point in your dog is. Um, There shouldn't need to be a whole change. So if we start holding these dogs to a higher standard, if we start having a more consistent opinion of what a working dog should be, mm-hmm. I do think breeders will rise to that occasion. The demand is there. Yeah. We just need to, yeah. No, and you, I mean, you brought up the, one of the biggest points that's the issue, which is the fact that agencies are told or the handlers are told by the agency they're not allowed to breed the dog because this whole fear of making money off of the puppies and what do we do and this, that, and the other versus we need these, especially these really good, talented dogs to re-contribute back to the population so that way we have more dogs available to us for the future and not be so reliant on either overseas. And that was the whole, of course, reason why the Patriot or sorry, puppy the Patriot program started to exist was, you know, obviously the U.S. government was like, why do we keep going overseas to get these dogs and so on and so forth? And okay, why can't we create a breeding breeding program over here that can mimic those things? And of course, as we've all seen, easier said than done. However, if we see we have individuals like you and others around that one already know, let's say this particular male or female and say, okay, now that this dog has proven itself within its career field, we need to breed this dog back into the system. And 
have some diversity within this. So it, it's like even the breeders working together because as we both know, there's certain uh, types and bloodlines that um, breeders will go on, but sometimes having that diversity is really helpful to one, prevent problems or two, breed a problem potentially out of a line. Um, and it, it just what's frustrating for me sometimes, and I know for you, is you know, why does it have to be so hard? This is not like a rocket science con, uh, context here. We should be able to pull this off. Now, it sounded like, I think one of the ways that you worked around that was you, when you uh, provided a dog to an you guys have like a breeding agreement. Is that correct? For some of the ones that you've done? Yep. So we've got quite a few males out on breeding agreements. So the females are typically the harder part because if they're going to be bred, that's going to be a few months off of the job. Mm-hmm. So we don't usually have females out with either law enforcement agencies and and definitely not on the federal side Um, because we need that dog to come back to us for a few months. Mm -hmm. I don't want that handler raising the litter. I want them raised the way we want to raise them. So that's going to involve that dog coming back to me for typically the last few weeks of its pregnancy and then throughout through weaning. So it's almost three months Um, working on the cadaver side of that within the volunteer organizations or or volunteer SAR handlers has worked very nicely for us there. Yeah. On the male side of it, um, working with agencies on, on breeding agreements, um, we've been fairly successful for, I think a few different reasons. We are very upfront when we have an agency inquiring about a dog. Um, we don't do very many. So we have a limited mm-hmm. number of dogs that mm-hmm. we can do for agencies. Um, and typically we have agencies on our wait list for about a year prior. We, we do such a small number that unfortunately we cannot meet the demand really any quicker. Sure. Um, yeah. So those agencies know going into this, that if you'd like a dog from us, if it is a male mm-hmm. and if he's very nice, we would like to have the ability to, to breed him. Yep. And what's involved with that, we do not have to do natural breedings typically when we say we don't have to do natural breedings for whatever reason the agency Mm -hmm. is all of a sudden far more into it i'm not sure if it's a stigma (laughs) thing or if it's a whatever yeah um but if they're fine with us doing collections and side-by-side ais then great and and we have the ability to do it here which is nice too yeah um but so we will uh work those males we do keep them the really nice ones we typically keep within a a smaller geographic range just so that we can have access to them. Or we will place them with agencies on the agreement that if we would like to use this male for breeding, this is the repro hospital you can go to. We pay all expenses. We do all of that, but you may have to take them every once in a while to this repro hospital. They will collect them, Mm -hmm. chill the semen down and then Mm -hmm. ship it to us. Now, Within that, again, we've we've been very lucky because we're very upfront through the process that, yes, if you'd like this boy, then this is just part of what goes along with it. Mm-hmm. We try to keep enough boys and we always tell you we're not going to abuse it. You're not mm-hmm. going to be having to do this every month. Yeah. But maybe a couple times throughout that dog's lifetime, this is how it's going to have to get done. Um, the ones that are really, really nice we will freeze before mm-hmm. they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, we can freeze a dog and get great quality semen if that dog's even 10 to 12 months old. Um, and so even if that dog isn't proven in the working dog world yet, um, or maybe doesn't even have all its health clearances yet, 
I will spend the money to gamble and freeze that dog. Now, if it comes back with a funky health clearance at two years old, then fine. We throw away the semen and whatever. It's done. Yeah. Um, but if that dog turns out to be a banger and it's really, really nice, at least I know I have some part of him back. Um, and we have the ability to get normal size litters most of the time with frozen semen now with the way reproductive technology is working currently. Um, so having the foresight to collect and freeze anything that we think is even, you know, has the potential to be a really nice dog is important. Um, and working within agencies, yes, not all of them are going to agree to being able to do some type of breeding thing. So then freeze before they go. Yeah. Semen is owned as a a semen is property. Yeah. Um, so if you collect and freeze that dog before you send it, you own the semen. The agency has nothing. There's, there's no, you know, influence that they have over that semen that was collected and stored while it was with you. Yeah. And, and, I mean, like, like you just said, it's important that we look at doing that more frequently through yourself and then the other breeders that are out there in the United States just so we can keep, uh, you know, enough of the genetics here, especially of those really good dogs. Um, now, with that said, how – what would you say is probably the biggest washout aspect that you guys deal with? Is it environmental? Is it motivation or is it, um, medical? It's a good question. So from the medical front, we've been very lucky. We're very, very selective at looking at breadth of pedigree when we're selecting dogs. So not just those parents' health clearances, but the grandparents, the uncles, the aunts, the half siblings, all of that. Um, the OFA database online has some really great features to be able to look at vertical pedigree and give us the statistics on, mm-hmm. on what in that pedigree has been tested and um, what's come back successful. So we've been knock on wood quite lucky with medical and not having very many medical washouts. Sure. Um, biggest washout factor that we typically have occasionally it's motivation. Mm-hmm. Typically those dogs are going to a lot of those dogs, I think, though, that we see are just a little slower to mature and mm-hmm. do often mature with the right amount of motivation. If we're breeding right, they might just take a little longer than we want to get there. Yeah. Um, I think pressure, I would see, is our biggest washout. And pressure isn't necessarily a factor as in the environment or thinking of slippery floors in and of itself. But the idea, a lot of times with labs, I think we see... Um, a a dog who avoids situations that they feel to be uncomfortable. And a lot of times I think that pressure with labs comes a little bit more from a social place Mm. than it does necessarily the environment itself. Um, So typically when we're buying in and even what we see sometimes with our own puppies um, is more of a, a washout from social pressure. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure there's a better term or something to describe that (laughs) um, more so than it is the, the actual environment or the actual objects in the environment mm-hmm. itself. Yeah. No, and, and, and I would say from the buyer user end, it, it matches pretty close to what you're saying. The number one thing that gets the dogs washed out is an environmental uh, aspect. The dog isn't strong enough due to, uh, you know, a lot of times, I mean, I'm in Las Vegas, so we have crazy environments. So whether it be, constant moving doors, escalators, 
um, people walking around in like robot costumes and weird things like that. Fireworks every night because they're going to have that at the casino and so forth. Um, and so things like that wash out a lot of dogs. Then the motivation and, and what I've seen lab specific is uh, you'll have some labs that come out really hot. They were ready to go. And then all of a sudden when it becomes work, when we're now going, you know, five, 10 minutes of something, you know, in this case, search work, the dogs start petering out and you can do things to like try to attempt to remotivate them. But they're like, yeah, no, I had more fun at, when this was real quick and easy, but now I have to do this for five, 10, 20, 30 minutes or whatever. I'm uh, not so into it, which brings me back to that point you made about, uh, how years ago the in that field trial community, they looked for that, what I would call perseverance, that dogs that could go really far out, be really independent, deal with crazy environments to get to the retrieve. Uh, and now that's not the same. But those type of dogs would go, they were, you know, close to like, described as like a, those Malinois type Labradors that would just go until they fell down. Now, of course, we don't want that extreme either because those are hard to manage and hard to live with, which means their success rate, obviously, in detection sometimes drops quite a bit because the handlers just have, have a hard time managing that much independence and pushiness. And, and, and they're not... I would call the most effective searchers for the things in the typical detection dog world. Search and rescue, yeah, maybe when you're doing acres, but a handler who's doing cars and doing rooms, a dog that just wants to get out and go crazy is harder to deal with. And what's kind of funny is the spaniel world is very similar right now because they don't, they're not popular as far as at least in – most regions of the United States, they're not popular yet. Out here, out west where I'm at, they're more popular. And we are we have those dogs that are still that hardier style evaluation. Uh, they're pushed really hard uh, through some very difficult type testing. And then those that are breeding are really strong dogs. And, uh, you know, the working side that when I get them, I want to do detection, I actually have to teach the dog some breaks in a sense. I have to like slow them down a little bit. And I am able to do this because I'm doing it as a puppy. I, it's super hard when that dog already started its life in those developmental ages from, let's say, you know, eight weeks all the way up to, let's say, eight, nine months old. And then they re the hunter realized, okay, not what I want. Let's see if it works for you. So I look at things and go, oh, yeah, I really like this. But then there's so much of that I would call uh, what's best word I want to use where they're just really energetic and they just want to go run around. We call them spaniel loops. They just go, woo, they run around because that's exactly what they're designed to do is go flush the birds. So that is so hardwired in them by that point. It's a little bit harder to manage them. It's a little bit harder to get them to be more detailed searchers, but their, their nose is really good. So it's like a catch 22. Do I allow this dog to be really high energy and search like crazy everywhere or do I try to slow this down and manage it? And some are receptive to this, some are biddable, like you said, and some of them are not. Um, so bringing it back into that lab category, um, you know, it's now the labs are almost, the, the pendulum went back the other way, so biddable, so much collaboration. Um, and I've seen that a lot in the uh assistance dog world, you know, they have very established breeding programs. Um, 
it, it works a lot of, like what you're saying earlier. There's a lot of controls in place. They breed certain ones, but they can also, I think, absorb the levels of dogs that wash out where I would say, comparatively speaking to a professional breeder like yourself, those things aren't as easy. One, you're not a nonprofit, so you can't just keep doing that. Two, you do like, you have to find homes for the ones that aren't going to be workers. And we already have, we deal with the overpopulation of, of dogs that are out there. Labs, of course, make life a little bit easier than a Malinois breeder who has to try to find a right home for a Malinois. But with that said, I, even a, a dog that doesn't make it as a detection dog could still be too much for the average pet owner. So I'll let you kind of expand upon those things that I said there. Absolutely. No, and when we look at washouts, again, I'm in, I'm in labs, so I do have an easier time than any mm-hmm. of our pointy or, you know, breeders yeah. that way. Um, but still, when we look at service dog washouts, those dogs that are washing out typically are washing out for house manner issues or environmental issues. But everything, how they've been raised, how they've been bred, they are bred to have an off switch. They are bred mm-hmm. to be a lower energy, very nice dog pleasant dog to be around that's been a huge emphasis of that breeding so those dogs typically go on to be phenomenal pets because yes they might have a few issues or kinks that need to work out but the basis is that dog is a pleasant dog to live with um i don't focus quite as much on a pleasant dog to live with i don't care quite as much about that um as long as it's manageable Mm -hmm. so we do run into an issue sometimes where we see a dog that um you know, needing to find a home for, we need to find something that's going to be active and um, give that dog still a task because they've got a brain that's still quite busy and needs to do things and they'll get themselves into trouble without proper mental and physical stimulation. Mm -hmm. Um, And to, you know, expand on the point you were talking about earlier, those dogs that um, kind of come out really strong out of the gate and then peter out with the work. I think we see that a ton in labs and it's, in my opinion, due to a little bit of a either misunderstanding or, or misguided belief when we look at arousal versus motivation or drive. Yes. Um, we've got a lot of labs and, and particularly I'm seeing quite a few from people that have just started breeding for detection. Uh, a lot of labs that are really high arousal, but probably only like middle of the road, even sometimes to the lower end on actual mm-hmm. motivation. Mm-hmm. They come out really hot. They look really, you know, fancy right from the start. Um, but the work that they're doing isn't necessarily efficient. Yep. The work that they're doing is not purposeful. A lot of those dogs will spin and bark or do random dumb shit because yes. they're just doing stuff. Yep. Um, I tip, I, I prefer, and I think we, you know, I'm big on selecting for a dog he may not look super flashy, you know, he may not look right, just sitting there, but I want that dog to work with a ton of intensity, Mm -hmm. a ton of motivation, be extremely purposeful in what it does. Um, And I think those are the dogs where you get into where they become so addicted to the work that it doesn't matter if it's rep 15 and they're hot and they're doing the same drill over and over again, they're, they're addicted to it. They need to do the thing. And the job is really what's so motivating. Um, And again, in labs, we also need to make sure 
from from that point um, that the reward has the proper value to them. We see some labs, and I think we see it more in the pointers, um, that are so motivated by the hunt that yes. they get to that final reward item and they go, eh, that's, you know, let me just keep hunting. That's yes. more, more motivating to me. Um, and we see that here and there in labs. So I need a dog that is working for its reward item, is working for its toy um, above all else. But that really thrives on that work that requires to get there. And one of those dogs that we put a challenge in front of them and they, they, you know, they rise up to it. Some of you can see, they just, they like it the harder it gets. They like having that, that push. Um, and those are the dogs I think that really are, are effective assets and, and successful in the detection world. Yeah, no, you definitely brought up a point I see all the time. And that is the handlers that get those dogs that love to hunt. And it boggles their mind when they reward that dog. That dog plays for like two seconds with a toy and wants to go back to hunt again. Or it just doesn't play super intently with that toy. So then they're like, what do I do with this? It just wants to go hunt. I'm like, it's not a bad problem to have, number one, that it likes to do that. We need to be adaptable to that dog and understand how to use that. Now, I'm like you. I do like a dog that does want some play interaction with me or, and with that toy. That's, you know, a, a motivational aspect I really like in the dogs. But like you said, especially with the pointers, um, I would say they're probably the highest I see it with frequency wise. Labs and spaniels are about, to me, pretty close to the same on a given day. You could have one stronger than the other one. I'd probably push maybe a little bit to the spaniel side that did this love to hunt. Um, but with that said, I I mean, heck, if you love to hunt and then tell me you found it and then we play and you want to keep hunting, I'm not going to complain. It is or it does go against the norm of what so many of us are used to because we've been told over and over again through all those generations of trainers and handlers, this is what you want. This is what you need. This is what it should look like. And as the population of Labradors being the most popular detection breed started getting over or sorry, overused and not enough of them available, then they started looking at other breeds. And then these other breeds like the pointers didn't have the population behind them or the genetics diversity behind them to handle the demand that the detection dog world put on it. Then we started seeing these other things come up, which was, you know, a lot of dogs thrown together to breed and we get qualities that were weird and things like that. Um, yeah, no, I, that was a great point because I see that so much more frequently these days. Uh, or people ask me as a trainer when I'm doing my lectures, Hey, what do I do with a dog that just loves to hunt? So, you know, getting back to it, which is, it does depend on the dog in front of me, how predominant that feature is and does it interfere with its ability to do the job I want to do? If it loves to keep finding hides and keep working. I don't have a problem with it. And usually those dogs are the ones that will search 20, 30 minutes and not give a crap. They're just like, yep, I'll keep going. You know, I don't have to make the find. And that again, boggles a handler's mind because you know, a lot of teams train for their odors they put out 
and they want to go run through hide to hide to hide and a dog that wants to just keep hunting <laughs> makes the gears grind on them a little bit as trainers so and handlers but uh you, and i want to circle to something a little different but on the same kind of realm so in the point or sorry in the uh, labrador world um there's the pointing labradors Talk a little bit about that because that's its own subset. I mean, we could spend so much time talking about some of the genetics and some of the cool stuff, but I, I want to also kind of highlight some of the things that I know listeners want to hear about. So talk about about the pointing labs. What's the story behind them? And um, are you seeing a increase in these dogs or this, this type of genetic line out there more frequently now because of detection? No, it's a, it's a good, very good question. And I think we're seeing more and more of them. Now, full disclosure, my background is not within the pointing labs. Mm -hmm. I have not dabbled much within that world. Um, you know, and so, so pointing labs and the genetics that behind are behind it are, um, are definitely not my strong suit, but from the, the general overview, um, pointing labs have been, by far and large, more of what we would call our, our meat dogs for years, the dogs that are out with game hunters, out on preserves, out, you know, with guides doing hunts for, for hire, um, that are just meant to go pick up all those birds mm -hmm. and, and do whatever they're supposed to do. Now, pointing within labs is an interesting function because we have a dog then essentially who is finding yep. a flushing and retrieving the bird, which is a lovely mm -hmm. thing. And my dog that I upland hunt with is not a pointing lab, mm -hmm. but he points and he is steady to point. <laughs> and then he, it's a wonderful thing. And yeah. I will say I've gotten more birds hunting behind that dog that points. It's a great thing that way. Um, and I love it. And he has passed that trade on to his, his offspring. A lot of the pointing labs came from traditional field trial lines. And it was a trait that was seen identified, selected for, and now has become stronger throughout those generations. Now, within the pointing labs, we get into a few different, few interesting things. Anytime that we pick out one specific trait to select for and breed for, we have to be careful that we're still keeping the dog as a whole. And so sometimes within, within certain subsets of a breed, because we've strongly selected for just that one trait, we may lose some other pieces of what makes the lab the lab. Mm -hmm. um, or we may not be emphasizing as highly the whole dog. So it's wonderful that they can point, but if the environmental stability is not there or the health testing has not been paid quite as much attention to because we've just cared mostly about this really strong point, we can run into we can run into some issues. Um, now, from my experiences with the pointing labs, I will say I, I do like a lot of the things that they're bringing to the table. Um, and I think I like most the fact that we are looking at a dog who the tasks that they are doing are probably most closely resembling the detection tasks that I'm asking a dog to do. They are using their nose. They are going out and locating a bird. There is not nearly as much emphasis on running a blind. It's mm -hmm. not doesn't matter um or visually marking so the traits that we're looking for from the detection world are being emphasized a little more highly now within the pointing subset it's still there's lots of uh 
a good amount of drama or, or dissension within the breed. Mm-hmm. There are some of the hardcore field trial people who are really not fans of the pointing labs. You know, labs aren't supposed to point. That is not what the breed is. Um, and back and forth that way. Um, it's, again, we need to look at the sports or the activities that are rewarding the dogs that um, are closest to what we would like as a detection dog. And I think those pointing things bring a lot to the table. Um, Now, that being said, again, we look at the whole dog. So one thing that I see fairly commonly with pointing dogs is, um, you know, the the fact that they point is great. We just need to watch the dog work. Um, When we see some of them work, we go, okay, there is handler sensitivity there or there is um, sensitivity to environmental factors. And sometimes I think, and at least in a couple of situations we've seen, um, dogs that are pointing as what started maybe as more of a suspicious response. Um, and we've all seen the dog do do that, see something novel or see something weird. It frees up, freezes up at points. Um, and, and there have been a few lines that I've, seen that I think, okay, maybe that's a little bit more at play there. There is a good Mm -hmm. amount of visual suspicion. um, And that dog is not necessarily pointing from a genetically hardwired or or really confident place. They're, they're kind of half-hearted pointing and freezing because they're just stopping because something weird is in front of them. Um, But within labs, I think we're getting to see more and more of them. Again, we can find them in our field trial lines. And a lot of those field trial dogs, if you put out in the field to hunt, there's a fair number that will point. Mm -hmm. Um, My boy is out of a a well-known field trial sire um, who produced a lot of offspring. A lot of those Ali kids do point. It's fairly common. Um, They're not being bred specifically for it. But you put him in the field and he's on pheasants and that's what he will do. Great point about when we look at a characteristic that we really like, such as the pointing, um, and we get so focused on that, we miss or we may create a another issue that was a byproduct that we we're like, we got, oh, I love the pointing. And then we totally ignored what the uh, uh, other things that started coming up as. So when we when we do these uh, selective breeding traits, we have to be really careful about what we might miss when we do that. So um, great point for people to consider because sometimes we get really into um, – that whatever that quality is, we start breeding for that quality like crazy. And then next thing you know, wait, where did this thing come from? And then the other point you brought up, which was awesome, uh, was the aspect of um, that suspicious behavior was what was missed. But that was why the dog pointed. Because so many times, like you said, dogs will kind of lock up on something and they're a little not confident, you're not comfortable or confident. And then it's misread as, Oh look, it's pointing in this case. Um, and it was not really that way. And then all of a sudden that's get reinforced. So the dog goes, Oh, okay. This non-confident behavior does get me reinforcement. So I'll keep doing this. And then next thing you know, we bred this other quality in there. So that ties back to that first point you said about getting highly focused on, uh, the, the breeding, uh, of a certain quality and not really looking globally at what we're doing. So 
the I mean, like I said, there's so many oh, I could just keep going, but I know listeners also want to hear now that you have the puppies, what are give us some of the steps. Let's go from birth to week three. What are important things that you do from birth to week three? Yep. So we do, and again, at birth to week two, puppies cannot see, they cannot hear. So we've got a few senses that we can work with, but we're aware they cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot regulate their own temperature. So at that point, they're really tactile little beings who are dependent on mom for food, nutrition, um, everything in life. Um, and so starting at that end of week two, puppies start to open their eyes. They start to be able to hear noises. And so we start opening up a whole new, uh, whole new part of life to them. So what we do during those very beginning weeks, we do do early neurologic stimulation. We do do early, uh, the early, what is it called now? Um, early scent stimulation, or there was another word for it too. Mm -hmm. Um, basically exposing them to different scents during those first 14 days. Mm -hmm. Um, so that is a passive activity at that point. The puppies really aren't doing much for or against nope. it. We are just working through those little neurologic exercises for them. Um, we have played around with not doing it with some litters, doing it with other litters. Do we really see a difference? I'm not sure. Um, nothing confirmed, but um, it's one of those things that we feel, okay, at least it doesn't hurt. So yeah. whether it's helping or not, so be it, but it shouldn't hurt anything. Um, during that age that we are starting to set up easy little pieces of, of stressors, um, environmentally and physically in their life. So starting around day three, when they're moving around the box pretty well, they're able to kind of crawl around. We do add different surfaces to the floor of that box. So we often go to Lowe's or Home Depot and raid the tile section and all the sample floor section, and we'll get a piece of you know, slippery metal or a piece of tile with weird nubs in it or something like that. And we put various things along through the whelping box just to get those puppies from that very early age used to different things under their feet and different textures under their toes. Um, and then starting about the end of week two and getting into week three, when typically puppies are quite, or at least our puppies are usually up on their feet. They're moving well. They're getting quite mobile at that point. We'll start setting up little bits of puzzles where we will have the mom be out of the whelping box for an hour or so. We know puppies are going to be hungry. Um, we'll put her back in, but we'll put her back in at the opposite side of the puppies. In between them, we'll put something like a piece of tin foil or, a, mm. you know, the grippy shelf liner yep. um, just laying out across the middle of the whelping box. And so they've just got a little easy challenge that those puppies have to go over in order to get to mom. So we're just starting to build that idea of you do sometimes have to move through pressure um, in order to get to your reward. And so we start it really simple at that age. Then we start building it outside the whelping box again when puppies are hungry. The biggest motivation they're going to have at, it, at that age is nursing, is yep. to get to mom. That's really all that matters for them in life. Um, and so we will start to set up little things where, okay, now she's outside the whelping box. We move all the puppies outside the whelping box. And at first, she might just be two feet away. And they just have to go through two two feet of weird new room they're in to get to her. And then she's six feet away. Now today they have to go and move that far away to get to her. Um, tomorrow she's behind a, you know, kind of tucked behind somewhere behind a nook. So they have to go out and use their nose a little bit to find her to get to her. Um, and so we build upon those puzzles gradually as we wean them over the next 
period of weeks. Um, we usually start weaning around, we start feeding food around three weeks. Um, we start weaning around that five week period. So between that three to six weeks there, um, we set up food puzzles. So we get into, okay, your food at first is just right there. You can grab it nice and easy. Now it's going to start to be where that food is now behind a, you know, behind something. You just have to use your nose. You go right around the side of the you know, table folded up and hey, there it is. Um, Now you might have to go around a barrier. Now you might have to climb up two steps to go up onto something to get it. But we can create those little puzzles that are just building the idea of persistence, resilience, moving through pressure. um, And and yeah, starting to get the idea of working for your resources and working for the things that you need. Yeah, that's really important aspects. I mean, and I, when I get a puppy, uh, at eight weeks, I still I build upon that and do, like you said, more weird things while they're hunting for the food and successive approximation starting off smaller and then getting bigger and, and more complicated, things like that. When you're in, like you said, between those stages, let's just say eh, five to eight, right before you're probably going to be giving it to um, either a raiser or somebody who's actually buying the dog, what are the things because I know you have the magic crystal ball that tells you exactly which ones are going to be great, <laughs> which ones aren't. Um, what are things that you look for in that age range, those three weeks right there, that help you go, this is one I think can do detection. I mean, I know we're, we're going to be wrong a lot. And um, yeah, I had this great conversation actually between Ivan and, and Michael Ellis when they were having a conversation about um, – it's never the one they typically think it's going to be, you know, the one that was a standout puppy so often has turned out to be, eh. and then the one that was the real weak puppy, sometimes those, it, their opinion from being years of breeders was so many of the great dogs kind of come from the one they're like, oh yeah, that one. I didn't really, it was like, I, I caught it in the special operations community. They call it gray man. The one that was not the standout, the one that wasn't the worst. Um, do you see a similar thing for the Labrador puppies that you've been doing stuff with? Oh yes. Um, and the, the project that's really highlighted that is, um, so we're part of, Uh, the Domestic Breeding Consortium, which is a pilot program that's funded by DHS, organized by John Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. Um, And so that that Domestic Breeding Consortium has us keeping back the entire litter until a year old. And that is a super enlightening experience because keeping back the whole litter means that we do not get to say, hey, I think this puppy really sucks right off the bat. We don't Mm want to keep it back. We have to, we have to keep all of them and raise all of them. Um, and so we have absolutely seen, I mean, my last group we had through go through um, one of the little puppies, we named him Stu and Stewie was kind of a, Stewie was Stewie as a baby. He was just <laughs> kind of there. He wasn't really anything. He was a comedian. He was funny meh Mom, about mama, toys, mama, mama. Meh <laughs> about work ethic things. Um, and he went on to be procured by TSA. He's phenomenal. He's turned into such a strong, motivated dog, um, tons of grit, tons of resilience. He turned out so cool. I would not have sold him to a detection home seeing him as an eight week old puppy. No way. Yeah. And Lord help the family, the sport family we would have put him with. I mean, he's a ton of dog, but yeah. didn't look that way at eight weeks. Um, and so I often do think we, we make mistakes and placements and I know I have, and and we've had dogs return for that point. You know, dogs have said, 
hate, this should be able to be a great little sport dog, not going to be enough for the detection world, whatever. And then they come back usually eight to 12 months old. And they're like, this is not, we can't do this in the house. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Hey, they've often gone on to have really cool careers doing other things, but some of those, you know, we call them sleeper puppies. Like they just look pretty chill, just kind of there. Um, but a little bit of maturity kicks in and, and all of a sudden it's all there. Um, and I think on the, the opposite side of it, sometimes the ones that are really, really strong looking in the litter, really motivated, um, or really just generally really flashy within the litter. Um, often we'll see, um, higher drive, higher reactivity with, mm-hmm. with labs that are like that. Um, and so that puppy that might've looked so, so flashy in the litter as eight weeks, um, turns out that it's, yes, it's got plenty of drive and motivation, but there's also a good amount of either visual reactivity or, um, some other factors that we need to work through with that dog because he's, he's paying attention and he has very big emotions about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so puppy testing wise, it can be a little bit of a crapshoot. And yeah. I know we make decisions wrong all the time from that. Um, we do the best we can. We try to look for trends. I'm not a big person to do singular puppy tests. We do look at the trends over that last those last three weeks. Um, we have kind of a, a red, a green scoring system. So every mm-hmm. time they do something new, who are the puppies who score red? Who are the puppies who score yellow? Who are the puppies who score green? And it's just that general, they didn't want anything to do with it they kind of did it or they jumped right into it. Um, and we keep those trends for about three weeks and look at, you know, as those puppies mature, what are the, what are the correlations there? Are there some that consistently are red puppies? Then, Hey, that's probably not going to make it as a detection Mm -hmm. dog. We're going to try placing them elsewhere. Um, and that served us pretty well. We've been able to do quite nicely placing within that, the ones that are consistently reactive to novel objects. or the last one to a approach or consistently nervous about things those dogs typically do great when they get with a singular handler who can build them up and support those factors but they're not a dog that we'd be able to put into a professional working capacity yeah how much i know this is always the big debate how much is nature and how much is nurture and um like you're bringing up we deal with uh, or we're kind of guessing at certain points uh, in that early stage. And all of a sudden, just through that proper development, we see very different things. Um, and I'm going to throw I'll add this to this question of that nature versus nurture. So many are super excited to start dogs really young on odor, but yet there's so much different developmental things that are happening in a puppy in those early months. Um, what's your opinion on that and how, you know, what should you be careful of? What should you watch for to navigate in those stages? Yeah, I think the thing we see is that it's so easy to make a little thing a big thing. And I think handlers that are very motivated and very eager to get started with the puppy, they see the puppy look weird at a garbage can once. And so they go, oh, my God, now garbage cans are bang. And and they do, and they train it in a behaviorally sound approach. And they are constantly working aggressive desensitization to garbage cans. They're getting it there. I've seen that cause more issues than not in most cases. Those puppies now are, there's always these weird feelings attached to garbage cans. 
Whereas if we were just kind of like, huh, that's weird. And we keep moving. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it just goes away. Yep. Um, and so, and it could be the other way too. We see puppies that do silly things when we start putting them on odor. If we start young and we harp on that, we go, oh my God, this is a thing. We have to fix this little thing. Yeah. Um Whereas just let maturity fix it itself, let development fix it, let it just, you know, resolve naturally, um, I think is often the better approach. And so we've looked at, again, through raising the whole litter, I think has been the most enlightening piece. And even um, through uh, looking at the service dog schools. So I worked at two different types of service dog schools. I worked at a service dog school that did all of our dogs in prison. And mm-hmm. we're prison raised dogs. Mm-hmm. Those dogs had a very controlled, very structured exposure to life. There was all of those dogs saw the same thing. All of those dogs got the same number of outings with volunteers to the same number of places. That was a very consistent system versus the traditional model where a family takes them, is raising them and is exposing them to whatever that family has. And they go to classes with the instructor, or whatever, once a week. Um, and what we are seeing is that the, the soundness um, of the dogs was often better with the dogs that were just with a family who knew nothing, weren't yeah. trying too hard to expose the dog to any one thing or another, and just kind of were whoo, like going through life as if it's one big party. Those dogs were often far more behaviorally sound. We yeah. wash those dogs, not nearly as much for environmental issues. We wash those dogs mostly for training issues, counter surfing or mm-hmm. getting into the garbages or things, jumping, things like that, um, that were training problems, not necessarily environmental problems. The dogs from the prison schools rarely ever washed for training problems. Those dogs were meticulously trained behaviorally were phenomenal. The easiest dog you could ask for to take out. They Mm. were wonderful that way. Um, But we were failing them consistently for reactivity, for, um, uh, you know, suspicion towards novel objects, Mm. noise sensitivity, sensitivity towards your fear of children, fear of other dogs, um, you name it. But those dogs were getting washed so, so much for um, environmental sensitivities. And the more we tried to emphasize and say, okay, we're seeing a lot get washed for fear of children. We're going to expose them to more children in this systematic way. Honestly, the worse it got. Um, And I think it was because there was too much emphasis on making that thing a thing. Um, Whereas the families who had no experience were just, they didn't pay attention necessarily when the puppy had a weird reaction and they were going about their business as if nothing Mm -hmm. happened. Um, So it's an interesting look to see how much, you know, the raising styles I think can influence where dogs kind of fall apart. Um, And I do think letting them grow up, letting them be puppies, letting them figure it all out, letting them do their dumb puppy shit. And, you know, I think that's important. I think we need to do it. Yeah, I have, I I couldn't say it better myself. I, you know, what happens to us that are diehard dog loving people that really want to work our dogs is we have a hard time controlling ourselves of like, well, I want to do this and I want to do that. And I read this article and this person said to do this and that, you know. And my God, the poor puppy never really gets to be that puppy and go through puppy things. And just like you said, that puppy put in with an environment with somebody who doesn't know any of those things, just to get to be a puppy, 
gets to really develop nicely and more well-rounded because exactly what you said, the minute that the dog person um, sees the one thing they didn't like, then it turns into the focus. And it's like, I joke around, called like picking the scab. They're like, now you've got a scar because you wouldn't stop picking the scab. And we have to be understanding that there's not a rush. And just because you can doesn't mean you should. And it's not a race. Um, it's tough. What's crazy is that, you know, on the professional side, most professional handlers don't get their dogs other than search and rescue, get their dogs as puppy. Most of those get their dogs at a year old. So the dog is usually past some of those things. Now, what I am seeing more frequently now is because of the growth of the uh, sport detection programs, when people are getting these puppies, it is they get a puppy and they're like, okay, so do you think I can get an NW1 by 10 weeks old? And you're like, wait a second, slow down, let the puppy, and I'm exaggerating there. But the aspect is they they want to go as fast as they can. Um, and again, it falls into that just because you can doesn't mean you should. Some dogs obviously can handle that, other dogs not as much. And then lo and behold, the issue you have is more created than would have been there had you just kind of let the dog do its thing and go about whatever your training was going to be at a pace that worked for that dog more so than in our head, what our, what our uh, goal was. Like, I wanted to, I want to show the world how awesome this dog is because I really love it. I picked it out. You know, Kate picked it out for me before I got there and said, this is the one and I'm going to show how amazing this dog is. Um, and we could have just been, yeah, and performed even better maybe when we hit 10 months old or a year old, uh, slowing it down. So, you know, it's, I think we get the better of ourselves with that excitement sometimes. And, uh, the points that we're bringing up is, uh, be patient. And some of those issues we deal with, sometimes we have to point the finger back at ourselves as we, we create it because we were too, for lack of a better term, neurotic about like, oh, there was this thing and we saw this thing and, you know, I don't want people to think my dog is bad on, you know, uh, trash cans, like you said, or fire hydrants or what have you. Um, and it's crazy, you know, in this same kind of conversation right here and tell me if you see the same thing. Cause I'm just curious cause I haven't really talked to anybody about this. So the, in the past year I've done spaniels and labs, uh, from puppies. What I have seen is there isn't, there is definitely predictable. There is that term fear period where the dogs are kind of adjusting and things like that. Um, what I have seen though, is it seems like females enter this stage a little earlier before the males do the males do a little later, which then throws you off unless you've seen it enough times. Um, does, does that specific part kind of match what you've seen where females kind of develop a little bit sooner and see some of these things faster than the males do? Then all of a sudden the males who seem rock solid all of a sudden like at eight months old are like showing weird stuff. Absolutely. Actually, I was having this conversation with someone who has a young dog from me this week. So a young dog that I bought in, um, vended out. And so, yeah, he was like, I think it's early for this dog to be hitting a fear period, but she seems weird with noises. And I said, all right, has she seemed weird with noises up until then? Nope, she's been rock solid. So put it away yep. because it's it, it's it's a fear period. And it does. I think the females tend to hit them earlier and a little bit more specifically than the males do mm -hmm. in that they will focus on that, 
a specific thing or one specific thing that is odd. Um, in my experience, the males tend to hit those fear periods a little later, and it doesn't look like as specific of a, a fear. It looks like just a generalized everything is kind of off and odd. Um, and those fear periods, absolutely, oftentimes, if we just put it away for two weeks or three weeks and say, hey, let's revisit it later on, you go and revisit it later on and the dog goes, huh, that never bothered me. Yeah. Like it's nothing, nothing was ever wrong. Whereas when we, I liked that picking the scab analogy, when we pick that scab, we are going to create an issue and something that otherwise would not have been a problem, we will make into a problem. Um, and I have had multiple dogs that have had to wash because of their razor. Um, their razor has thought they were doing the correct thing and that mm. they saw something odd with the dog. Um, they harped on it. They really obsessed over it. They, they made it into a thing. And now that continues to crop up throughout the dog's development. And we have to wash them out for that. Um, so oftentimes it's really hard to sit back and say, hey, we're not going to set up the situation. We're not going to try to replicate the situation. But I think oftentimes that's really the best. Don't make it a problem until yeah. it is actually a problem. You yeah. know, we, we can just let it be. Let it sit. Once is a fluke. So, yeah. And each dog goes through that stage at a different uh, length of time, too. Some get over things pretty quickly. Other ones, it's like, it could last a month or two, you know? Oh yeah. And then all of a sudden, like you said, wait a second, a week ago or two weeks ago, fire hydrants freaked you out. Now you don't care. And before they didn't care. So, yep. but that re and I've been there, I felt it where I will look at the dog and go, okay, why do you not like this now? And it's only because I've done enough of the young dog raising. I now take the approach like you mentioned, which is I'm going to sit back let the dog, you know, I'm not going to go into flooding because so many people want to flood that problem. And then, like you said, that problem becomes worse. I let them kind of examine it. If they're not cool with it, we move on. And it's not the end of the world because obviously if it's sound genetically and I'm still doing the important aspects of raising it, this thing will get passed. I might try to do occasionally like when I see the dog's comfortable enough, hey, let's go hang out and eat near this thing. Or again, it's so dog dependent. I can't even really honestly give you good sound advice, but it'll the dog will show you what you can and can't do. Um, and you do have to be careful about flooding because I was, I had been in those shoes before I've done it. Even still, my trainers will look at me sometimes. I'll throw the dog. I'm like, they'll be fine. They're like, but that's overwhelming. And, that, and I'm like, you know, and I have to slow myself down and go, okay, yeah, I guess they could be right. I should do it, you know, in a more thoughtful way versus like being the typical guy, like, ah, the, the, the strong will survive. They'll figure it out and I'll throw them out there into something. Um, but yeah, so it's, this is just good information for those that are in the, uh, you know, looking at raising a dog or in the stage right now, raising one um, is, I, I can't stress enough that let that dog go through those developmental stages um, from that. When you get that dog eight weeks until like eight months, I don't really start. I do developmental games, just like we both said, you know, search games, play games, environmental communication, little things like that. And I don't push it. And it's always at my dog's pace, not at what I think it has to do by X amount a week kind of thing. Um, and last thing I'll bring up, which kind of ties into this, is that intelligence aspect, that mental flexibility. Um, have you done or does uh, John Hopkins or whatever you get, do you guys do any of the puppy cognition stuff through like the Emily Bray had put out? Um, I'm just curious if you guys have looked into that. How much have you? 
So the testing that they do, and I would, you know, it's a great conversation for Carrie Medenbauer and, and a lot of the team working with John Hopkins there that's developing and designing those tests is similar um, to a lot of the cognition type testing. So there are some um, basically unsolvable problem like box type things that we do with the dogs. Um, there is a heavier emphasis on looking at um, environmental stability at that younger age, which is not nearly as cognition based, but it's just looking at those um, those environmental factors there. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a useful um, test and it will be useful again with any of these things, the more we can continue to kind of research and look along. Now I will say as a subset for these dogs as compared to let's say labs that are not bred for work, labs that are bred for show or just generally for pet. I mean, we have created at, in some way, definitely some kind of either mental tick or try and think of how to describe it. A normal dog will not be so devoted to an object, a ball or a tug or something like that, that they will physically hurt themselves to obtain it. That is not a normal, necessarily healthy characteristic of a sound, behaviorally sound dog to be that obsessed with an item. Um, and so even when we are talking about puppy things, when we turn on, I think some of those obsessions too young or we focus too much on them, I, again, it, it's, we're creating dogs that have, or we're breeding for dogs that have an odd brain who are far more obsessed and singularly focused that than is really normal. Um, and so if we try to bring out those things too young and we try to encourage those things too young, I think we can end up with a really weird dog on our hands. And I've seen it where we just, the dog is so unbalanced and so, so obsessed in life with this thing that it cannot function at all. Um, And yes, this dog could be a wonderful working asset, but um, may not be able to live normally. And so, or or we create all kinds of other inadvertent problems because of it. Um, And so if the genetics are right, we've bred that dog to have the motivation it needs. Great. We don't need to turn it on until the dog's got the uh, maturity to be able to handle it a little bit better. Um, we don't need to, you know, encourage a toddler to have OCD. That's yeah, not, no. not necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, but yes, back to the cognition stuff. Um, the testing we do does look through some of those, those basic problems. It looks through a little bit less how that dog is interacting with the handler. Um, and that's something that, that may end up being, you know, looked at later on, there are certain traits that we're evaluating throughout to look at um, handler engagement. So just how often does that dog look back towards the handler as it's solving other exercises. Um, But for the most part, the evaluations that they're looking at are environmentally focused and based. Yeah. Yeah. We will have to talk once we off camera uh, or off the uh, podcast, but um, so Natalie, the trainer that works with me, has done a lot of with uh, the puppy cognition and making some adjustments based on the things that, of course, that we need. Uh, we had a trainer here for a little while, uh, Lily Strasberg. She actually was part of the initial cognition aspect at Duke University and then went over to Auburn and did a lot of the MRI studies and things like that. Um, and she gave some input as well. Um, so I'll have to share that with you and some of the things that we do and then heck maybe even do go up to your place when you have a, a litter of puppies and do a puppy cognition, uh, seminar or something like that. But anyway, yeah, it, it, it's super cool to watch because 
you have a possibility. I, I had to stress the possibility part of it. Um, seeing what the dog scores, memory or inference based, and that's that's what we categorize it as: dogs that are stronger in memory or dogs that are stronger in inference. In that eight week to 14, 16 week stage, you have a opportunity to strengthen one side or the other, depending because they're they're so malleable at that time. Um, does it always work out? No, but it's it's your only window where you have an opportunity to uh, build something on on a dog. So, uh, but that's like I said, it's a whole, and, and we need more puppies to do this with, honestly, to see more of this data. Now I know, like I said, Dr. Emily Cohen, uh, she's be Bray, uh, she's over at, at CCI up in uh, Santa Rosa, and, and she does a lot of this. But again, for her side, it's focused heavily on that collaborative aspect because it's for the assistance dog program. So they're looking for that. Where I'm looking for the opposite, I'm looking for like you, that independent type dog, the dog that's a problem solver not so mentally stimulated that it's not mentally flexible. So yeah, it's, it's some cool stuff that we'll have to get into more. Well, I hear my dogs going crazy in the background now. They're all like, come let me out. So it ends up being a good time to, we could keep going and going. And I'm, I'm sure I will have you back on again so we can go deeper into this. I have some ideas I want, I want to go over with you. Uh, so that way most of this community can keep learning from you because you have so much good information, such a good background. I, I think it needs to be heard by a lot more people than, than probably what you've had been doing only because you're so busy doing doing what you're doing. <laughs> so I, I understand the time aspect. So Kate, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing a lot of this information for us. I, I'm really, really appreciative of it. So I'm going to give my little, nope. my little audience thank you cheering so much for you. For, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. And I really appreciate this opportunity to talk. And I think, yeah, we all, there's so much, you know, I have, to learn from from everyone that's on your podcast, from everyone in the detection community. Um, and only through us all collaborating together is this going to start to move towards a, a more feasible domestic supply of dogs. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. No, it, it's huge. And I think, like you said, you, you're, you're putting in the good work out there to help make that goal more achievable. So I know I definitely appreciate it. And I, again, if people want to get a hold of you, I'll put your contact information in the show notes. Uh, if there's anything like, do you have you you want to share your website? Is there anything you want to have people to follow you? You can go ahead and t- tell us now what that is. Yep. So our website is catalystkennels.com. That's Catalyst with a K. Uh, social, we're Catalyst underscore canine on Instagram. Um, Catalyst Kennels is the pet side on Facebook. Catalyst Canine is the working dog side of it on Facebook. Um, Maybe once we have a little more time, we'll get better on social, but you know, time <laughs> yeah. is a limited oh, thing. Oh yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> Very limited. Well, everybody, thank you for watching and or listening to this podcast, Canine's Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. Okay.